Welcome to the Recon Podcast. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Recon member Lone Wolf Pig. Many of you might also know him as the fetish legend Ray Spannon. We'll be chatting about his incredible history on the fetish scene, the incredible work he's done for our community, and of course, about Ray Spannon, the author, the man behind the articles. Please enjoy the episode. Okay, so if you've ever paid attention to our blog feed or our home feed on Recon, Twitter, Instagram, also on social media, I'm sure you'd have seen any number of articles that uh, Race has submitted for us over the years. Um, we first met him in San Francisco a few years ago, and I think this was the beginning of a brilliant relationship uh, between Recon and Race. In my introduction, of course, I say that he's a fetish legend, and he is that to me. And I think if you've um, had the opportunity to see him in a documentary series or meet him on the street and talk, this is generally someone who's so completely immersed and knowledgeable about the scene, he cannot be anything but that. Um, Again, that's as far as I'm concerned. So when we talk about someone who has influenced the scene, exactly. I mean, Race, you're one of the first people that, you know, that pops into my head. And, you know, there's like a few list of names, but you're like at, there at the top of my list. Um, I won't go on much longer with the accolades because I can see him. You guys can't see him. He's like blushing a little bit now. So I'll kind of like stop that and we can get him in. Um, so please welcome Race Bannon, Lone Wolf Pig to the podcast. Welcome, Race. Thank you very much. I am honored to be here. Um, so I think before we like get in and dig in, I mean, we could probably talk for two or three hours about who you are and what you do, but can you just tell us uh, maybe just a little, a little brief synopsis of, um, well, of you, like who, who is Ray Span and who is Lone Wolf Pig? Ooh, who is Lone Wolf Pig? Um, I've been in the scene since 1972, 1973, depending on what milestone I use to <laughs> indicate that my entrance into the scene. Uh, I was very much a lone wolf pig, which is why I adopted that name eventually, because from that time until probably about 1980, I, I operated pretty much as a lone wolf, uh, a player, a bar goer, an event goer, et cetera. And then in 1980, through a series of happenstance, uh, I started to get a higher public profile. I began to teach, I began to write, I began to speak, and I sat on boards of directors. <laughs> the list goes on, and all of a sudden, I was as much a public figure and not so much a lone wolf pig <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and um, and uh, the, yeah, my, my sort of public king persona was born. And I've been pretty active as a, a writer and organizer. Uh, I owned a book publishing company that published fetish books for many years. Uh, I've sat on many boards of directors. I, I don't want to go into too much detail because it will sound like a resume, but uh, I've been pretty consistently active. I'm 67 years old now. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Amazing. Usually guys don't, you know, when we get in that older set, because I mean, I'm also myself past the five, past the big five. And usually at some point, you know, the age kind of drops off and people never 
never talk about it, but I'm like, I'm glad that you're celebrating that. And that's definitely something I want to come back to a little bit later on. You, how long have you lived in San Francisco? I moved to San Francisco in 1994 from Los Angeles. Okay. For some reason, I thought you were like there before the movement. What was it like in 94 when you moved there? Uh, it was uh, the city, I think, was reviving because the HIV cocktail was becoming much more prevalent and people were coming out of that rather dire time. And uh, the leather scene was always active here. The Here in the States, we typically call it leather. Um, I know in, in, in Europe and elsewhere, it's often fetish. I think many of us are adopting the kind of overarching kink name to, to yep. so whatever we call that scene we're in. Um, <laughs> it was, it was always very pretty active uh, throughout, but it, I think personally, it saw a tremendous revival around that time. And I've been uh, very, you know, sort of blessed to be part of that revival. It's been great. Yeah. I think many people don't know, you know, what the scene was like in the city at that particular time. You know, people go in and they go, oh, we're going down to to Soma, you know, south of market area. But this particular, you know, district of San Francisco, I mean, apart from the, the raging Castro, you know, Soma had its own birth, its own history, its own diverse group of people in terms of the leather men who went there at the time versus the neighbors, the residents and the businesses that were established around. And I think there was a huge change, like you always say, like you just said, in there was this movement, this shift that was happening in San Francisco at the time. What was your connection to the Soma scene and this shift at the time it was happening? Um, uh, for those that aren't familiar with Soma or South of Market, which is what Soma stands for, uh, it's a an area of San Francisco. Uh, it was a very blue collar, um, mixed neighborhood once upon a time. And it, it, uh, was rather inexpensive real estate, which is why the leather and the bathhouse scene and, and, uh, the gay men scene in particular thrive so well, uh, and, and grew up there. Uh, it's still to this day is the center of leather fetish kink life in San Francisco, although all of San Francisco is a little bit kinky. <laughs> <laughs> very kinky, very kinky. <laughs> we are very, we do celebrate it. Um, you know, as a side note, it's, it's, it's amazing that as a leather man, I can be in full leather and walk into city hall in San Francisco and walk into my legislators and talk to them directly. And they understand that the leather scene has a, has a, has a voice and a, and, and a, and a, a, a true community, but, but that's a side note. Um, so yes, South of market, always sustained as the center of leather king fetish life in San Francisco and is to this day. In fact, one of the great things that's recently happened is the forming of the leather and LGBTQ cultural district in Soma. Uh -huh. And it is the city of San Francisco saying, essentially blessing that district of San Francisco as having a leather and LGBTQ cultural history and city money goes behind it and city you know, city leaders respect it and um, work with that district to make sure that the culture of leather and LGBTQ life um, is sustained and thrives and grows. It's it's a pretty remarkable thing. One of the questions I was going to ask is why do you think that out of so many different American cities that fetish and 
kink has survived and thrived in San Francisco for as long as it has? And I think you probably partially answered that question because if the city is behind it, um, then it does. But I mean, there has to be what else is behind the, this life, this fetish kink life? Well, there, there's various histories that point to why leather kink fetish thrived here early on. Uh, the most common and probably historically backed uh, is that when the military was discharged, they were often discharged in San Francisco and the gay men that were in the military decided not to go home because they were being oppressed back home and they found a home in San Francisco that was welcoming. So that is also to some extent why a lot of the imagery was leather, biker, somewhat militaristic. In fact, many people don't realize that some of the first kind of uniforms, for lack of a better term, that the, the leathermen of San Francisco wore back in the day was black leather jackets, but white jeans. Yeah. And part of the reason for that, we believe, is that a lot of them were Navy men wearing white. And so they were very comfortable with white as pants. And it also showed your bulge. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes yes yeah yes. yeah so. i can remember in the mid 90s i lived in new york off and on over a six-year period and i remember the times when the sailors would be coming off the ships and some would go home and a lot of them who were gay bi or curious would stick around the city and it would, often they would be around in their sailor pants still and some in their full sailor uniforms. And it's one vision I think I will never get out of my head is the tight ass cheeks and the bulge in the front of the pants, you know, the arms and the pecs. And there was a look and there was something I have to say that was... Um, it made such a shift in the dynamic of the city whenever the ships came in and the sailors were off. Everybody was out on the street and the bars were full, just waiting for the sailors to come in. And it was great that there were some who at the time weren't afraid to be out, um, you know, and their sailor suits. I can remember going to Splash, you know, and Splash being absolutely packed going down Christopher Street, you know, as they'd been the monster underground. And I can remember, I, you know, I can, sorry, I can imagine that uh, this vibe, this energy in San Francisco would have been very similar at the time. I think it was. I, I, I was not in San Francisco at that time, but the stories are that it indeed um, did kind of have that impact on the, the gay men's community in particular. And I think because gay men are so creative, we began to create this hodgepodge of imagery that kind of took a little bit from the sailors, took a little bit from some military, took a little bit from bikers, and, and we mushed it all together and created our own aesthetic that um, at the time was the hyper-masculine aesthetic that, that we kind of um, gravitated to. I think times are changing, and I think that that's not necessarily all there is anymore. But at the time, that was the one of the defining characteristics of the leather scene, certainly in San Francisco and a lot of the United States. Yeah. There is something that we just came up, and I hadn't meant to necessarily ask this, but I will because it's so opportune. I was having a discussion with somebody a few weeks ago about gay men, fetish men specifically, and the fascination with uniforms and this love-hate relationship with uniforms based on 
what they might have initially represented to some people, this form of repression or suppression of gay men and gay community. So, and the question that came up in this conversation, and, you know, I had a really long chat with the guy, he's writing for me as well, actually, on something around this topic, but I can't not ask the question on how, on what do you think about this relationship that fetish men have with, I guess, the older obsession with uniforms and how this is changing now. And it's, there has become quite a divide on how acceptable certain uniforms are or are not uh, within our community. It's interesting you ask because this just came up at a bar um, two days ago. <laughs> Somebody, and some, a, a good friend of mine who has an old leather shirt that has um, police patches on the arms said, you know, I didn't wear that today because I was a little concerned. And I said, you know, number one, I think that that's probably wise. I said, because I know, and I think all of our friends here know, you have no intention that that means anything repressive whatsoever. But we are at a time when people are having this social discussion. Maybe we need to let this social discussion play out a bit and listen to the sides and Maybe we'll come to a place where we say, you know, you can have that fetish and it could, it could even be public. And we understand socially that it isn't a, a, a repressive, oppressive um, thing. But maybe we're not quite there yet. Now, I many people in my community will disagree with me. They say, no, you should just be able to wear it and we can't censor any kink and fetish. And while theoretically I agree with that, on a practical somewhat sensitive to everyone's opinions level, I think that there might be a time for a slight pause and that pause will give everyone the chance to have this social discussion. And, 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 and because right now, if, if one wears it, it might be perceived as a, I'm pushing this in your face just because I can F yeah. you. And I'm not sure that's a healthy way for us to proceed in the community. At the same time, I fully respect people that have that fetish and kink. So I, my stance personally is that I think a short pause is a good thing. Let's have this discussion. Let's, you know, hash it out. Let's come to some sort of consensus if we can. And then maybe we can tiptoe back into that. Uh, so that's my stance and that's where I stand. Uh, I also happen to be someone who has not historically had a strong uniform fetish. So I cop to that, that I, I can maybe say that a little more easily than someone who does. And I am fully aware that a lot of gay men disagree with me about what I just said. I'm yeah, they do. And this on to my next question, this is going to actually preface a lot about what um, is happening, you know, with the future I think of not just our scene in our community, but the gay community as a whole, or maybe even, you know, when we think about what's happening on an even more global scale, you know, we had something, um, we put out something on the website, like when the Black Lives Matter movement happened. And it was really quite interesting because there were a few people who wrote into us and said, oh my God, what's happening now? Recon is becoming so political. What is it all about? Now all of a sudden you're woke and, you know, we're not here for this. We're here for sex. We're here for fucking and we don't want to do that. And da, 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 da. And it was really eye-opening and very interesting to get this kind of feedback um you know from members from people who are just general followers and some of these were also people that 
that I knew personally. And it gave me a very different perspective on how people engage with the scene and what they expect of, you know, uh, brands like ours. Um, do you think we are becoming, the scene is becoming too political? Is there a need for us to become more political? I don't think the scene has become political because I think radical sexuality is a political statement. Uh-huh. I, I think that when we are the rebels and the mavericks, we are already counterculture. We are already making a political statement in my view that, you know, we are going to live our lives and we're going to express our sexualities and, and be who we are. And that to me is already a political statement. So I come from a, an old, uh, you know, when we used to just call it the gay movement long before LGBTQ. Yep. And it was it was always a political statement. And when I walked out in my leathers, it was absolutely a political statement of sorts. Now, I know that there are people who would kind of put their kink away in the closet and then take it back out and go out. And they don't they separate the two. I happen to think it is a political statement. So so there's that. Second, I think it's incumbent upon any community right now at this point in time to understand that we are at a milestone moment of diversity and inclusion. And we need to accept that, that we are because kink doesn't operate entirely without influence from the rest of the world. I mean, we influence them and they influence us. Absolutely. And so I think it is incumbent upon us to take a stand for diversity and inclusion. And um, I was recently, during the pandemic, I was part of an organization called the um, San Francisco uh, um, Queer Nightlife Fund. And we formed a nonprofit to keep queer nightlife in San Francisco running, um, paying some of the the nightlife workers, et cetera, uh, through fundraising and then giving out grants. And partway through it, when the Black Lives Movement started, we changed our mission and we did something which is controversial with some people, especially of my skin color, and we decentered whiteness. And we made that as an intentional part of our mission. And some people got a little pissy about it. <laughs> and, <laughs> I and can we, imagine. I know you can. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Oh, I can. And we felt it was important to take a stand and to decenter whiteness in the work that we did. And we tried to, to make sure that we we um, hired and, and, and reached out to um, people of color in particular, uh, and, and we took some shit for it. But at the same time, many, many, many more people respected us for it. And I think this is what the kink fetish leather scene, notice I use all those words because people relate to different parts of it. Um, I think it's, it's part of what our scene should be doing right now is to Decenter whiteness a little bit because we have been at the forefront of it all for a long time and we benefited from it. And why shouldn't we use, and I don't use this word very often because I think it can be overused, but why shouldn't we use our privilege to um, help the people that haven't had so much privilege? And um, I think it's really, it should be part of everyone's thinking in our scene at all times with what we do, especially at this point in time. Let's hope 10, 15 years from now, we don't have to think about it as much. Sadly, I think we will have to, but I hope we don't have to. But for now, I think it's a very important thing that we should all be taking to heart. 
I absolutely think so. You know, it goes back to the very old adage, you know, they say, be the change you want to see. And people talk about how disjointed the community is, but they won't necessarily put the foot forward or make the effort themselves to actually think about how what they do in their personal lives or what they do when they're out on the scene actually manifests all these, you know, the craziness and the chaos that we sometimes see and how sometimes even the smallest of gestures we make or showing a bit of kindness, even that simple. And, you know, to somebody else who's new, we always talk about how opening and welcome the scene is. And I know firsthand um, that experience of being a stranger walking into a room and looking at people who are familiar and you're the unfamiliar and what that kind of dressing, that visual dressing down can do for you. It can very easily demoralize um, people. And I think it also in a way can put people off from the scene because they're automatically made to feel before they've even had a foot in the door as though something is wrong with them. And if we want to see this incredible change and this incredible togetherness that we keep saying our community has, it's one of the things that we should definitely um, continue to think about. Um, the world is changing and the scene has got to change with it. And we are the scene. So we have to change how we interact. And I think that our scene often gives a lot of lip service to we're welcoming. And I think most of us believe we are. And even some of us with the best of intentions aren't as welcoming as we really should be, whether it is the person of color walking in the door, whether it is the, the, the young guy who walks in, who's not quite dressed in the exact fetish gear you think they should be in. And you're starting to judge them the moment they walk in. Whether, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Oh, that never happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> whether it's, you know, a hyper masculine group of guys and, and, and a, a more, uh, you know, feminine expression, expressing man walks in and all of a sudden they're immediately judged. I don't care what it is. We're, we always other people. You know, that we like to other human beings. And um, I'm hoping that and I think there's room for everyone. That's what's nice about kink and fetish and leather is that there's room for all of us. If you want to glom on to your hyper masculine imagery and 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 and, you know, demeanor, rock on. But if you want to express yourself other ways or whatever, rock on, too. So um, I am of the opinion that there's a place for all of us. And I hope we're getting there more and more. Are these the kinds of things that you tackle or you challenge uh, as part of the uh, San Francisco Leatherman discussion group? I know they have the talks and they have the, but what happens after this? What happens after the, the discussion has taken place? So I am, uh, I, I, it, with full disclosure, I don't sit on the board of the discussion, the San Francisco Bay Area Leatherman mm -hmm. discussion, even though I am, very involved with them. And I've, I've spoken in front of them and I attend most of, most of their sessions. Um, for those who don't know what it is, it is a group of gay men who formed decades ago to get together and have discussions around leather. And in, in the Americanism of leather is leather fetish kink, but, um, and it started with literally 10, 12 guys in chairs in a circle, having a discussion. And it has now grown into this rather massive event, typically, um, that is done once a month. It's been virtual during the pandemic, but normally in person, where they gather, they socialize a bit. There's a presentation of some sort or a facilitated discussion. 
And then there's lots of Q&A sometimes, then some socializing afterwards. And it has become a linchpin event in San Francisco for the gay men scene. And anybody's welcome. The topics are always of interest to gay kinky men, but anybody's welcome to attend these events. And they absolutely have tackled this topic uh, in, in more than one discussion, whether it is as part of a greater discussion or have they specifically centered on uh, perhaps an entire panel of men of color and, you know, what are the issues that they face and how do they feel about being part of the scene and um, how can, how can they tell us that we can make it better? We who are not um, of color make the scene better for them. And they have tackled that quite directly, honestly. And I, they're a remarkable bunch of men, and yeah. I I have a lot of respect for them. <clears throat> Kudos for them. I have a lot of respect for what they do. And, and by well. the way, if anybody wants to ever find out about them, it's sfldg.org. Uh-huh. Oh, and lots of their um, their presentations are recorded and available for playback. Lovely. Talking about um, presentations being available for viewing and playback, Um just the other week, you were sitting on the panel for On Guard Cigar Salon with um, Mr. Christopher Graylin, Cigar Pig, and with Pup Amp. And that was really good to watch. So thank you for like pointing that out to me because and directing me to it. It was really, really good. I really enjoyed that very much. I also like the concept that, you know, you're sitting around and it's like this other really relaxed uh, panel discussion. Um, this was episode two. Was that right? That was episode two. Um, episode three is is coming out shortly. Uh, so it started because um, Mr. Christopher and Cigar Pig and um, I would sit in Amp's backyard <laughs> during, the <laughs> pandi- during the pandemic because it was outdoors and it, they were kind of part of my pod. And we would smoke cigars and talk about everything. And one day, Mr. Christopher said, we should record this. <laughs> This is good. And that is how On On Guard Cigar Salon was born. And so we uh, just recorded episode three recently, and that's coming out soon. Um, We are going to start, uh, in fact, we just uh, put out another video in between just before, um, which was kind of a bit of a cigar tutorial that um, then is playing one of the What's the Safe Word um, episodes on cigars. And um, the plan is to do about one a month and we'll tackle, tackle different topics. And uh, I don't want to um, step on Mr. Christopher's announcement of what the next one is, <laughs> but you'll see it probably within a matter of days. Oh, brilliant. I'll keep an eye out for it. So I want to I talk about that episode, actually. We will probably take a little break, but I want to talk about the episode before. So on that break, on that episode, you were talking about hookups before Grinder. Yeah. And I thought it was so interesting and I could relate to so much because I remember the days of classified ads and looking into the backs of magazines and collecting the magazines just to see where the ads were or like calling, you know, phoning a number. But I remember the days of, you know, like asking the bartender to find out what the guy on the opposite side of the bar was drinking so that I could buy him a drink. And this is how you met people. So you had classifieds or you really had to literally pull your breeches up and be very ballsy to A, ask a guy to dance or to get the bartender to, you know, get the guy a drink. And I think there is something that's really interesting here about using apps, you know, not just Grindr, but Recon as well. And there are several others out there. And I think, you know, I I would agree the art of 
um, cruising, you know, the skill of cruising, the pickup, I think is is becoming a, a bit of a dying form, quite sadly. And I mean, I don't want to sound like an old Jurassic dinosaur, <laughs> but I actually, but I, I missed it. I missed that there was a really, there was an incredible intensity around that and this kind of sense of unknown. And there was also a little game, you know, the eye contact and the, and the playing. Um, but I think this ultimately leaves a gaping hole when we talk about social skills, uh, when people are out on the scene and how we actually engage and interact with each other. Um, how do we begin to get people to understand the importance of the skill, you know, the art of picking up or the cruising or even developing the social skills of when they actually connect with people off of the apps? You know, what are you doing in, in your real life? How relevant is that? Um, first of all, I, I agree with you. It, it is a gap. Um, and for those who want to see that episode, you can go to onguardsalon.com so, um, and, and watch that episode. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons why our events are so popular. And I think that's why events have grown because we no longer do do the bar cruising. We don't do the street cruising as much. So, but I think we long for that face-to-face wink of an eye, double take when we see, you know, this hot guy, um, the, the, the dance that we used to do in the bars and, in, and on the streets, you know, in our leathers. Now we go to events to do it. And um, I'm not really sure that we're ever going to revive bar culture to the point where it is um, more cruise, less social. I think it's really become a social venue. Then we go home and we get on our apps and we hook <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, and that's okay. Maybe that's just the paradigm we have now. But I think that we need to create as many in-person, face-to-face events. And Recon, to its credit, does a great deal of that. Thank you for doing that. We try. Uh, yeah, your parties are awesome. Your events are great. And I think the clubs, the organizations, the independent producers, to the greatest extent possible, um, uh, and along with the International Mr. Leathers and the, uh, all these other kinds of events, we need to bring guys together to cruise, socialize, interact, and be sexy face-to-face together in the flesh as much as possible because there is absolutely no replacement for that. Guys, you've heard it here. I agree with you, Race, 100%. I think we need more events. We need to find more ways to... I mean, it's one of the things that... It's one of our ethos is finding ways to get fetish men or like-minded fetish men or kingsters to make meaningful connections. You know, and I mean, it's, I can't say it's not all about the fucking, I mean, it is, that's a really good part of it, but I mean, we want to, you know, hook up with somebody that we like and hopefully, you know, these things will be meaningful and long lasting. This is where new relationships begin, new friendships begin. When you think about, um, you know, the fetish dynamic of, uh, polyamorous relationships and fetish families, um, and also things like mentoring and teaching and educating. It's like, what are we going to leave behind for these people? If we can't connect with everyone or with other people and we just stay behind the, um, the wall of an app screen, um, it will get lost. And, and maybe that is if, if there is any upside to the horrors that were the pandemic, maybe that is part of the upside is I just, I went, I, during that pre, Omicron gap. I went to an event for the very first time, a big event with, with, you know, a thousand plus Leathermen and everybody was hugging. 
everybody was just overjoyed to see people, to see men in the flesh, to cruise, to do whatever they wanted to do. And I think they missed it. They realized how important that was. And I'm hoping that that will carry over and we realize just how important it is. And we do whatever we can to make sure that we we come face to face as much as possible. And that isn't just about big events. That's 12 fetish guys getting together for a, a, a dinner. That is, um, you know, five of us, let's go to so-and-so's playroom and play. Yeah. Let's, um, you know, let's all meet at a bar and let's put a thing out on social media. Let's leverage social media and say, hey, guys, let's gather at, at this bar on this night at this hour. I'll see you there. Um, it doesn't have to be anything overly formal necessarily, but we need to consciously and not just default to the apps, but consciously try to reach out and say we need to gather together face to face as much as possible. I'm very fortunate to be a part of um very cool little kinkster family and what's really great is you know we just check in with each other from time to time how are people doing what's going and there are always lots of little impromptu someone's going to the pub oh i'm around you know so and i think this is what is missing um and we need more people to check in you know with their with their kinky mates with their kinky buddies with their kinky friends you know we know how incredibly difficult it was from a mental health standpoint for so many of us, you know, during the lockdown. And as you say, with the reopening of things and as events started going again, everyone seems to be clamoring for this attention and this affection. And we shouldn't forget, um, we should never forget what that kind of attention and that affection means uh, from someone. And you used a very important word that, that I use more often now, which is check in. I think that checking in with our friends, even people that we don't consider a part of our inner circle, but we just know socially, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to someone in a chat and saying, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? And it's astounding how often that will then lead to a little conversation and they'll say, oh, why don't you come join us at the bar? That means so much to so many guys because, and there's this, an assumption that, oh, he's hot. He must get everybody or whatever, or he's just totally together. But sometimes we just need each other. And I think that it's really important to do that check-in, as you said, whether it's your inner circle family or it's extended and reach out. And that's how we stay glued together as a community. Absolutely. Okay, there's so much more we can talk about. I mean, we can talk about this topic for ages, but we've been going for quite a bit. So let's take a little break for a few minutes and have a quick dash to the loo. And then we'll be back and we'll get into the real meat of Ray Spannon, the man behind the articles. I've got a few very good questions for you. We'll see you when we get back. something tight and shiny for a special event want ideas for your next session at regulation we're stocking thousands of products including leather rubber toys electro restraints and playroom furniture now shipping worldwide or get free uk shipping when you spend over 25 pounds visit our london store or shop online at regulation.co.uk Regulation Kink Delivered. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully you had as nice a break I had. I managed to actually wangle myself a small little tipple. 
I won't tell you what I'm drinking, but it's really tasty and it's very strong and it's very good. Perfect for the end of a Monday afternoon. So welcome back, Race. Hello. So let us now get into the meaty part of this, the man behind the articles. As I mentioned before in the introduction, you've submitted a number of really incredible articles for us over the years. And I have to say that since I stepped into this other role and I now receive them, we chat about them beforehand and you send them in. I'm always fascinated when I start reading. I literally like make time in the schedule. I thought, right, I have to do nothing else. Shut the world off. Just sit down and read. I'm always fascinated by how you put the pieces together. And there are a few articles that really struck a chord with me on one level or another. And so I want to talk about those bits. And if we start about maybe one of the most recent ones, it was an article you did on how to grow old in kink. And as someone who turned 50, we all know what happens to men when they turn 50. That mental crisis like kicks in and you start thinking the world is not the same as it was anymore. My sex life will die and it will be horrible. What I love in this article is you put a complete twist on it and talk about using it to your advantage. And you also talk quite a bit about your own sexual experience um, as a 67-year-old. How did the, What made you want to write this? The reason I wanted to write it is that I see two types of men in, let's say, my age range. They are the ones who either embrace it and thrive or consider it a negative and pull back. And every time I see someone who thrives, it's because they've accepted their age they realize there are upsides to being older. They're not all downsides. And that the truth is, with some exceptions, the vast majority of guys in the kink scene fully accept older guys. In fact, the daddy thing's kind of in. Oh, let me tell you about it. <laughs> it is. So, you know, you play to your strengths. And Often older men do have a little bit more experience so they can help the younger guys or younger guys will turn to that experience. Often they don't need to stress about a lot of the things that the younger guys have because often they have um, entered the scene a long time ago. They have a lot of experience. They've, they've walked the walk and they figured stuff out. And even older, I think what's often toughest sometimes is let's say you're 50 and just coming into the scene. Yeah. I think that can be very, very difficult for some guys because they are already set with the expectation in this culture that worships youth that, oh, I'm already less than somehow because I'm older. And I, I, I fully cop to the fact that I have a high profile in the scene. So it's probably easier for me as an older guy to navigate it. But I've seen a lot of people my age who don't have a high profile at all and they have fully embraced their age they're doing great. They're playing. They're having lots of sex. They're socializing and they're mixing not just with guys of their own age, but of all ages. And I think a lot of it is about attitude. A lot of it is about self-acceptance. And here's the other piece. If you're an older guy and you denigrate younger guys for any reason, just because they're younger, that's fucked up. Just don't do it because you were there once. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
and I see that with a certain small subset of older guys, they, they stand at the leather bar and these young guys don't know what they're doing and they're not dressed the right way. And they don't know what protocol is. And I could go on and on. And that's not, that's not helpful. (laughs) Not at all. I have to say (laughs) one of the things I had to switch in my head very quickly was, as you say, quite rightly, you know, embrace the age and i have to say 50 is working for me very well you know i know that i'm not going to be everyone's taste but we know like in this scene you know there's a lot of uh, maybe this also comes to another really important uh, an important topic we know that things something like age play is quite it seems to be ever so much more popular now than it might have even been before. Whereas you know, there was always the wish of the younger guy who wanted to meet the daddy and was probably never, you know, probably never had the the courage to go and approach and vice versa. You know, the older guy who liked the twink or the younger guys and would never approach because he never thought he could. And now for some reason, this seems to be less of an obstacle, I think, than it might have been 10, 20 years ago. And whereas being a daddy is like in, and I'm thinking like, I, I can't go against, you know, um, I'm going to embrace my daddy. I embrace my daddy's status fully. I mean, I don't necessarily look it yet, but when people see my age, they're like, oh, but you're a daddy. I want an older daddy. Bring it on. But we know that that also comes with a bit of responsibility, I think, that people sometimes forget. Um, and this is where, I mean, not just in terms of sexual connection and how we play, but also I think when we talk about things like mentoring and education and what we leave uh, for the other people coming up, you know, and that rolls me like with your last comment into the next article I wanted to talk about you wrote, which was listen to the young, you know, and I thought I read this and I thought this is such a brilliant article. Listeners, if you haven't read this article yet, please go to the recon blog page and look for this article, listen to the young, because it's really good. And I know that race, you've probably had a lot of experience in dealing with people like this. Um, and it's one of those things, the questions we get, you know, sometimes we do these spotlights and we do these highlights for people. We put their profiles online and the amount of people who have written us to say that person is only 28. They're only 32. They're, they cannot be you know, uh, a master, they cannot, they cannot have mastered their kink at this stage. And my thing is always, well, who are you to say that they haven't? Why would you say that they haven't just because they're of a younger age than you might have been at at a time when you came onto the scene or explored or mastered your kink? Um, How is this playing out? Um, Or what I, I'm wondering, how did this play out in the mind of of race sitting down and writing the thoughts, the crib notes with this article? Ooh, um, first, I have a lot of younger friends in the scene. I have made it a point all my life to mix with the entire spectrum of age groups within our scene for it's just always been the case. Um, so I always had the feedback and the input and the influence of, of younger kinky gay men around me. I also thought I have to get honest and think back to my original start in the scene when we did not have any mechanism by which to learn all that we can learn now in a fairly short amount of time. Back in the day, 
You want us to learn how to do rope bondage. There was one guy in my city who really knew how to do it well. And you wanted to know how to throw a flogger. There were a few guys that knew how to do that. And you could go through every kind of sort of technical aspect of our scene. And it was something you learned in a very slow plotting way, which now you can go to a bunch of classes. Once you could, you know, listen, you know, listen to the recon podcast. You can go to Watts the Safe Word and go to an event and go to a class. And you can learn these things very, very quickly, much more quickly than my generation was able to do so. So to, to say something about, well, they don't know what they're doing. Well, often the younger know more what they're doing than my age group does from a technical perspective. Secondly, I think that so much discussion is going on in the scene online and elsewhere in a way that didn't happen years ago is that not only do they understand the technical aspects of kink, but they understand the cultural aspects of kink extremely well. They, they get it. I have never felt disrespected around younger people ever in, my, in this scene. They may not be into me because they're just not into older guys and that's entirely fine, but I've never felt disrespected. So then the third thing is that I've worked in a lot of LGBTQ movements and, 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 and HIV STI movements and things like that. And what I have noticed in all of the organizations I've worked at in is that the passion emanates usually from the young, the energy of organizations, of events, of movements tends to usually not always come from the young. And why should kink be any different? The young are going to lead us to wherever we're going. And so I think that's kind of three reasons why we need to listen to the young. And we talked earlier about the Black Lives Movement. Perfect example. In many cases, it's, it was the it was young men that were more attuned to that. And we older folks had to listen to that and say, OK, you, you may, we need to listen to this and, and incorporate this into our culture. So I am a. I'm a champion of the young and I, I'm kind of a, when you see me out in a bar, you'll see me dressed very traditionally. I'm probably in full leather or something like that. But when I see these younger guys come in and all their different fetish gear and, and playing different ways, ways I don't even necessarily understand fully. And I don't care. They're having a good time. I need to listen to them and say, okay, you lead the way you showed me what, what's going on. I'll tell you what I know as an older person, but I need to listen to you. It's not just wanting to. I need to listen to you. I think we need more people who are within, I guess, the more mature age spectrum to realize, you know, when younger guys come in the scene, they shouldn't be fearful that it's out with the old and in with the new. And, you know, I think it's, I've always been someone who believes that I can learn something from other people, no matter what the age is, by watching, by doing, by engaging in conversation. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of what young people are now bringing to the table. And I mean, and likewise, this goes both ways. You know, the younger guys coming up also shouldn't discredit those who were there before them. You know, they're not going to come in and kick the door and basically push them off the side of the, you know, the side of the cliff and go, look, we're here now and it's about us and it's not about you anymore. Because there's also something they can learn from the other side. One of the things I have come to appreciate is as you say, the times are so different now in terms of how they learn. And with things like the apps and blogs and other websites, they're communicating in a far more 
in a much quicker, in a much more intense way than we would have done in the past. Whereas previously, if you wanted to learn something about a demo or a particular type, you had to physically be in a space because there was no other way to do it. And now what's really great is if you want to learn about almost any kind of kink, you can find something about this online and or, you know, on an app or Twitter or YouTube or something else. And that brings me to your next article, Leveraging Technology for Kink. Because technology has been such a brilliant tool in terms of moving our kink community forward and and also about how we connect. Um, you know, we talked about, actually, you. I let you tell us what it was about. I loved reading it and I thought it was really, really good. Do you remember this article? Um, somewhat. <laughs> um, I, I didn't reread it before the, this, but yeah. um, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts and I, I hope it's, it's what I said in the article. It, it was on, you know, on how individual kinksters use technology to enhance their sex lives. And I'm guessing not just by, you know, the searching for websites and apps, but also we know that there are lots of tech sex toys out nowadays. There's lots of sex tech that's about. And it's also about how businesses, Recon included, whether it's Recon, Grindr or Scruff, we all use technology to advance our businesses. And the article was based around how we're using technology to enhance or enrich our fetish lives. And by the way, and this is, this was not pre-planned at all. Um, even on our on guard cigar salon show, I think we've mentioned Recon every single time because it is the ubiquitous app connection site that pretty much all gay men are using that are kinky. So um, it's absolutely one of the technologies that 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 guys are using. Um, so whether it's hooking up and connecting and conversing and learning, that's one aspect of technology. But we are also, and this is going to just happen more and more, we're incorporating technology into our play. Um, I think Electro is a very good example. Eastim is a very good example of how technology has moved us into um, uh, uh, a, a new way of playing. Uh, I have a really, cr- I don't know if I recounted this in the article, I can't remember, but I had a friend who is very good at technology and he would have his sub sit in his house and then turn on the movement alarm. (laughs) And so so he would then be able to, from 300 miles away, know if his sub moved at all from wherever he put him. And he could put him into bondage without any restraint whatsoever, except he he made him turn on the movement alarm and he could, from remote, from his phone, no, if his sub had moved, it could put him in bondage for an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever he wanted. <laughs> I thought that was an incredibly creative use of technology in a very kinky, dom sub fun way. Um, and also very safe, by the way, which is really yeah. cool. You know, you can do it remotely, but it's very safe at the same time. Um, we know about remote control locks. We know about um, remote control butt plugs and, and cock cheese. That's a big thing and was really big during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it kept a lot of guys connected erotically. And would, creative. It kept them very creative as well. Yeah. And I think we're going to, uh, I mean, now we look at how popular fuck machines are. Um, those have become kind of common in our scene. And I have absolutely no doubt that you and I could be talking 20 years from now and we will be discussing um, the the latest sex robot. I, I, I you know, I, I hope that doesn't replace human beings, but, <laughs> but, but we know dildos have replaced penises and we know fuck machines have replaced fucking and we know so, as a temporary replacement, not necessarily a full replacement. And um, I am sure the technology will continue to advance and make our scene 
kinky in ways we have yet to dream of. Yeah, I we had someone submit an article to us a while back uh, and it was more like he had written out a number a number of thoughts and I really wanted him to um, work on it a little bit more. But it was about how during the lockdown he bought a fuck machine and he has become so obsessed with using it. He doesn't think he wants to go out anymore. <laughs> I mean, for me, that would be a little bit complicated because I like the the touch, but it's it's like when we would imagine, you know, people post things on their Twitter pages or something else about some new dildo that they bought that they just become completely obsessed with and nothing else will do except that. And, you know, he's like, well, the thing is that the fuck machine can just keep going. It can keep up with my stamina. I don't know anybody else who can. So he wants, so that gives him something that he feels he cannot get, you know, outside. And he's trying to figure out now how to basically break away from that and to learn to engage, um, you know, with an actual person. Uh, once again, I find it quite interesting that, you know, technology has taken us that far when it comes to sex. I, I think there's, I mean, solo sex is a definite subset of kink that is, is awesome. And um, being able to um, masturbate and play on, on one's own is great. And technology certainly allows us to do that in new ways. I still think it's a fairly small minority of people that, that don't still yearn for the skin to skin connection that Absolutely. is so important. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping not too many people pull away from that face to face. But I can understand if, if you like to get fucked for four hours, it's probably going to be hard to find a guy that can do it. <laughs> uh, I hope so. I mean, I'm a fan of touch. I mean, touch me. Okay. Ask me first, but touch me. Yeah, you know, I I, I, have a, I actually play with somebody who, who owns a, an industrial size fuck machine. And um, one of the ways that we've incorporated is that I, I, I'm i the one who's control, controlling it. So he sort of has the advantage of I could make it go as long as we need to make it go. But, <laughs> but, but I'm still in control of, control of it. So maybe we maybe there can be a, a middle ground there. <laughs> I hope so. I would hate to just uh, I, I would miss that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hope I'm looking forward to when he resubmits to see how he has elaborated or involved, uh, how he has evolved um, the story, and whether or not he can actually step away from the fuck machine and re-engage, you know, with the skin to skin once again. Well, there are sexual theorists that um, talk about when robotics reaches the point where, um, let's say, in our case, you could have this Tama Finlandish kind of robot that can be pre-programmed to flog, do shibari bondage and do, and do all these things. What will happen? Will, will some people retreat into a robotic sexuality? Who knows? Um, I think even then though, there, there's just going to be no replacement for the face-to-face -face that um, so, um, certainly not, you know, in our lifetimes. I think not at all. So the last article I want to talk about, another one that really struck me was Clean Slate Kink. This is another one, listeners, if you haven't read it, you should. It really gave me a lot to think about. And in this article, you know, you talked about meeting people. And I guess if, if I'm going to like really condense, I want you to elaborate, but I'm going to condense for the listeners. It's like meeting someone new and you've 
you're basically bringing all of your issues and your preconceived notions and your your baggage. You're bringing your shit into this meeting with another person. And it's about how you actually begin a new experience or a new relationship with somebody else, basically with a clean slate. And this is more like with a mental clean slate. This is this is your thinking without having... Uh, I think the the other person that you meet, they don't understand the preconceived pressure that you are placing on them, you know, and it can go wrong and they have no idea. And that's because you didn't come in with a clean slate kink. Race, I absolutely loved this article. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to write it is that I am as guilty of anyone of coming into a sexual situation with an awful lot written on that slate before I even meet this person. Yeah. Um, whether that is my expectations of their performance, my expectations of what they should know, you know, kink X, Y, and Z, my expectations of how dom-sub dynamics should go, my expectations of how they should be dressed and how I should be dressed, my expectations of the environment, my expectations of a whole lot of things. And what happens is you end up narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the actual subset of men that fit those expectations because there is almost no exact match on the planet for what you've been jerking off to for years. Yeah. There just isn't. They yeah. don't usually exist. So it's always about coming to some common ground. So to the best of my ability, I'm not always successful because a lot of our sexuality is ingrained, um, often because we have repeated a fantasy over and over and over and over in our heads. But to the best of my ability, I try to wipe that slate clean and say, okay, what do you like? What do I like? Um, you know, what, what's some common ground? Let's find things that are both, you know, some of our, some of our major kinks and move from there and realize that no one person's going to accept it all and to revel in those things that you have in common. Um, so, uh, so I think clean slate sex of any kind is a really good thing to do as much as possible. Uh, because I think it's going to make for a much better sex life. I think when we think, when we talk about this, you know, the, the phrase that people throw around quite often is, you know, porn has a lot to answer for. And I think people don't realize how much the porn they watch kind of ingrains these ideas into their head about what is ideally a fantasy you would like to make become reality. But as you say, there is a very minuscule subset of people that would actually meet the criteria that you have developed in your head. You know, there are sometimes, I remember once a few years ago, getting chatted up by a guy and he was talking about what he was interested in, you know, a sub and what he wanted me to do to him. And it, the list was incredible. And I felt at the end of it, I said to him, I said, you know, I'm not quite sure this is something I want to do anymore because I felt like you have been interviewing me for a job for the past, the past hour. And I also feel by the questions you ask me, I'm not quite sure I could ever live up to your expectations. And it's very interesting that that's another thing that has for me come with age is that I can very readily admit that, you know, I will not meet your expectations, but there is somebody else out there who will. And I think you should try to find them. But that is definitely not me. You know, there are guys who want a scripted scenario. And I think that ruins play for me. It, it does. I don't tend to play with a script. And I, I and I agree with you that 
a lot of the fantasy that we've been presented both um, in porn, but but elsewhere when we've proliferated it in, in conversations. I'll take but one example, um, the gangbang, right? I don't know how often somebody has hit me up and somewhere a minute into the chat, he drops, oh, do you have 20 friends that you could arrange to gangbang me? And I went, really? You think I can just make phone calls and do that? I thought it was only me that got this kind of question. And, and, <laughs> and not only that, I just met you. That's a lot of work for me to do somebody I don't know. Super. I said, if I loved you and cared for you and wanted to make something special for you, maybe. Yes. <laughs> but not somebody I just met. I don't care how hot you are. Plus, I think we just have to understand the logistics. I mean, whether it's, oh, you must have a completely fully equipped dungeon. Or, you know, I have to have this fantasy of you looking exactly like this. Or we have to script it this way for the next 48 hours. Or whatever it might be, it's a very high bar that very few people can meet. But here I contend very few people want to meet. And that's even more important is that they don't want to go there. They want to just have fun. And so, um, so yeah, these the scripts, the, the uh, unrealistic expectations, the amount of effort a stranger wants you to exert on their behalf when you don't even know them or even necessarily care that much about them yet because you just met them. Um, I, I think put that all together and um, it's just not a realistic way to approach your king. I am so happy you said that. It is something I agree with 1000%. And it's also one of those other things I'm not afraid to tell someone. Look, I don't know you. What you're asking me to do, that's a lot of energy for someone I don't know. You're going to come into my life, get what you want. And in however length of time afterwards, you know, five minutes later, you're out the door. You have fucked off and gone somewhere else and left me literally empty. You know, you have you would have sucked all the life out of me and run off and I will probably never hear from you again. I'm like, no, if to arrange a particular kind of play for someone, I think there needs to be a bond and knowing and understanding. I have to know you. I have to feel something for you in order to put in that energy to give you what you want. And I think for me, this also makes my my play very different. When I play with people, I want to have a very good understanding of who they are, not just physically. I mean, okay, we all attracted to the physical and that's really great. But the mental, the psychological part of you is something that I find so intriguing. And if I understand how your mind works, then it makes play different. So Organizing a gangbang when you've messaged me five minutes ago is not going to be the way to get me to hook up with you. Not no. going to happen, people. And if somebody does have a very specific kink, uh, that or whatever, that they want to pursue, they have to pursue it with the full you know, understanding that they're probably not going to find it very easily. Yeah. And then not bitch and moan that, oh, nobody wants to hook up with me. Well, well, yeah, because your expectations are unrealistic. It's not a, it, it's not them, it's you. And yeah. you have to, and so if you're willing to accept that, I want a very specific kind of scene that I'm going for, understand that you're probably not going to find very many guys that, that are going to do it and accept that. Yeah. I, there's, there's another, another one I get very often. I'm sorry. I have to like, I have to put it out there. When people message and say, you know, oh, can you come around and fist me? No. Who are you? Why am I coming to your house to fist you? I don't know you. I don't, I don't know your name. I don't, you haven't even told me your name. Not even a hello. Can you come around and fist me? I think this is something that's so deep and 
two people have to be so connected. I, maybe I'm an odd one out here, but I find it very unusual, very odd that for some people, this seems to not be an issue to just open the door and let a stranger walk in and put their hand up their ass. I, I can't do it. Plus, I'm not sure that I would want a stranger putting their hand up my ass way. I have absolutely no idea if they have any skill whatsoever in that realm, because you could do some damage if you don't know what you're doing. Oh, so, yeah. so I want to know that person at least a little bit <laughs> and have them vetted to some extent. Before they're, it's, it's like it's like throwing a single tail whip at somebody. You don't know who they are. Yeah. You know that 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 that. It, no, you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so a few final questions before we start to wind down. I would like you to describe yourself to me as a player. What kind of player is Lone Wolf Pig? Oh, that's a good question. Um, historically, I played for many, many, many years as essentially exclusively top and dom. I now consider myself very 50-50. I tiptoed from more top-dom exclusive toward true versatility very slowly over time because I bought into my own top-dom bullshit. And, and I copped to that. I, I <laughs> completely, I owned it and um, realized that wasn't really serving me because I had lots of fantasies and desires that were absolutely on both sides of the equation. I, um, I absolutely like having a bond with somebody I'm playing with, but I'm also a slut. So um, I, I'm kind of that odd mixture of, I like sort of intense bonding with somebody I'm playing with. Um, but I also like going to a sex party or a play party or something like that. Interestingly, these days, I tend to not go to those kinds of parties and events and venues alone. I like going with somebody I'm bonded with. So I kind of get both the bond with the buddy I'm with or the person I'm really connected with in some way. And then we do that together. Um, I'm pretty kinky. My, my no list is much, is much shorter than my yes list. And um, so when I, when people say, what are you into? I give a very short list of no's. And then I said, the breast is probably negotiable. Um, the <laughs> yeah. other thing that I'm really careful when I meet somebody and I, I, I say, I'm going to play is um I mean, there are times I go at an, an agenda. I want a certain kind of play. I admit that. That happens. But um, generally, I say this this long list of things. I mean, you go to my recon profile, you see this very long alphabetized list. By the way, it's alphabetized for a reason. And that's so that no one assumes that any one thing near the front of the list is more important than the others. Yeah. So, it, so that way, people don't assume that, you know, this is more important than that. I want to meet the guy, and then we'll kind of come to some common ground. But there is not a whole lot that I'm not into. BDSM, anything with butt sex, um, yeah, pretty much the entire range of, of, of kink. There's some things I'm not particularly into or good at, and I, I tend to cop with that too. For ex uh, Here's an example of something that I'm new to. Um, I never got pup play. I, I accepted it. I think I, I said, you rock it. But when a pup, the right pup, finally sort of approached me and kind of coached me from the pup side on how to play with them. Yeah. I remember halfway through the scene going, I get pup play. I finally get it. Your privilege. They let you in. They let me in. So, 
So you can teach an old dog new tricks, quite literally. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, another question. How important would you say it is for you to be living in a city like San Francisco? In light of the fact that I'm from Chicago, from Chicago went to New York, and I was in New York during the mineshaft days and places, things like that. And then from there to Los Angeles and from there to San Francisco, having only lived in smaller towns, very short term, mostly when I was working, um, I clearly gravitate to big cities. Uh, I have always wanted a gay community around me. I have always wanted a kinky community around me. It, it has historically been important for that. And even now, as I think, would, would I do anything after San Francisco? One of my few destinations is Palm Springs that I have in my head. And that's partly because it's a lot of kinky men. There's a lot of gay men, plus a lot of people visit. So even though it's a smaller town city, yeah. it at least has that kind of critical mass of, of kinky gay men that is important to me. So I think it's pretty important for me. Cool, I love that. Now, in the city you live in, knowing how diverse, and I would say that in terms of the even wider gay community spectrum, San Francisco is quite, they're not static at all. It's very involved and there's a lot going on in the city. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of advocacy. And I know that you yourself do a lot of work around the community. Um, how important is your community work, your, your leadership work, the talks and other things you do? How important is that to you? And what kind of legacy do you think that will leave for the fetish scene? Clearly, my community work is important because every time I say that, oh, I'm just not going to say yes to anything anymore, I end up saying yes three weeks later. <laughs> um, uh you know, with that said, I pulled back to some extent about with with some of the community work, but it's important because I don't think you can have a community without community members contributing. Yeah, I think whether it's volunteerism of any sort, whether it's somebody taking the lead on a project and hopefully not from a place of ego, but from a, you know, somebody's got to take the lead and I'm going to do it, whether it's making sure that our businesses and our events and our venues and our play spaces, et cetera, survive and thrive. That doesn't happen without community involvement. And it's always a smaller subset of people that get deeply involved because that's the nature of humanity. That's always been the case. But I don't think you're going to have a community unless you continue to have people involved. So in terms of legacy, um, Certainly in San Francisco here locally, I think the leather and the kink community is is thriving very, very well for a city that can be sometimes economically challenged. It's so expensive. Real estate is a big deal here. Yeah, you know London, right? Oh, <laughs> it's um you know it's mental here. Yeah, it's um so I think that uh you know we have those challenges. And we are still thriving and figuring out ways to get creative and maintain a community. On a personal level, from a legacy standpoint, I simply hope that people, you know, many years from now, let's hope it's many years from now when I'm gone, I hope they think back and say, you know, race tried to do some good. Yeah. And if, if, if that's all they think of me, I'll be really happy. 
Brilliant. I love that in your community, you know, that you have such a group as, you know, the San Francisco Leatherman's Discussion Group. That's really brilliant. You know, I think during the pandemic, we started our regular discussion panels virtually. And I th- I'm hoping that it's something that we can continue on. Can you remind our listeners where we can find the group online? Um, San Francisco Barry Leatherman's Discussion Group is SF ldg.org. And if you go there, you will also get links to a lot of their um, recorded presentations. They don't record any of the graphic stuff that they might demonstrate during some of their sessions. Um, (laughs) But any of the discussion stuff, panel kind of stuff, you will see um, preserved there in recording. So you can watch it play back and you can learn a great deal. Fantastic. Where can we find Race Long Wolf Pig and what can we look forward to from you next? Um, oh, let's see. Uh, you can find me at Bannon.com. And I'm the first to admit that that's I do not maintain my blog very well. So I have a post at the top that says here is everywhere else you can find me. You can find me on pretty much every social media platform as um, either Bannon Race or Race Bannon. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Um, and right now I'm very excited about us doing On Guard Cigar Salon. That's been fun. It's a new kind of fun project. So I'm really enjoying that. Uh, and we're working still on a documentary project. I, I don't want to give too much about that yet because we've it's kind of morphed and changed over time, but I'm still working on that project. And I am hoping as I retire from my corporate life, because I work in corporate corporate life, which is hopefully going to happen fairly soon, I am going to begin writing a lot more books. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the Ongar Cigar, uh, Cigar Saloon. Also, I'm looking forward to the next article you submit for us. Uh, and hopefully our listeners are as well. And we know that later on this year, we're going to be in San Francisco for Folsom. So we must definitely make a point of getting together while we are out there. Race, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. You were absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. Any words of wisdom for our listeners? Realize, and this is again, not pre-planned, realize that Recon is an incredible resource for the men's kink community. Um, Use it and keep it thriving because if we don't stay connected, we have nothing. Thank you very much. Peeps, you heard it here. Ray Spannon, the man behind the articles. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. 